the glory of the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, good morning. No one? No one? No one's awake? All right. Someone's awake. Uh, my name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. Uh, if uh, you got your Bibles with you, whether it's on your phone or a hard copy, uh, go ahead and open them. We're going to find ourselves in James chapter 5, verses uh, 7 through 12. <clears throat> So it's felt like, uh, this is kind of a sidebar, you know, as you guys are, are headed that way. Um, it's felt like a really good, uh, it's felt like winter, hasn't it? Uh, I think uh, last year, this time was 100 degrees. And so um, it's felt like a really cool winter. And, and so I love that. I love the cold. Uh, I, I love valley cold, right? Like that's really cool. I love cold and, and bright sunshine. I don't like rainy you know, it's just dropping tons of, you know, rain and, and it's wet. That just seems to depress me. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's been so good and, and it helps me, I think. Um, this is me just kind of sharing. Um, this has actually nothing to do with the sermon. Um, so it, it helps me reflect on this one particular passage. And it's, uh, it's one I, I tend to go to often, particularly in moments uh, or in seasons like these. And it's, uh, it's Romans 2.4 where Paul says, Do you not know that the kindness of God's heart leads you to repentance. And so when you think about God being sovereign and any, everything under his lordship, when you think about the weather being so nice, sometimes God's voice is so sweet, you know, and, and it comes in, in waves of 50 degree weather. Uh, it comes in waves of 45 degree weather and sunshine. And, and so anyway, it leads me to think about that. That was kind of just a random thought that, that I thought I would share with you. The other thing I thought I'd share with you is uh, so yesterday uh, our staff got together and we had this whole like prayer and planning meeting looking at 2018. I love stuff like that, but more than anything, I love the fact that I got to hang out uh, with uh, with our staff and we just got to talk about so many different things. And uh, while I don't want to embarrass them because they they'll they'll text me. Um, well, I don't want to embarrass them. Could you guys just give uh, our volunteers and our leaders such a big round of applause? They do such a huge, huge job here. And uh, man, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about them. Man, they, they love you. They love our church. They are devoted uh, to you and work effortlessly to make things happen, whether it's in their given ministry or merely uh, to serve you in, in any capacity. And so they are just simply awesome. But anyway, with that being said, not that that's not important, but with that being said, we're going to find ourselves in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And uh, what, we're, what we're seeing is that we're beginning to land the plane in our time in James. We have, uh, I think, one more sermon after this. And so we're beginning to, to land the plane in James. We're going to be finished through the series. And if you're new or if you're just joining us, for the past couple of months, we've been walking through this series titled Faith in Action. And uh, over the past couple of months, we've seen a lot of practical theology come out of uh, the book of James. Uh, James, who is Jesus' uh, little brother, his half-brother, and is also a leader in the church in Jerusalem, has been writing to Jewish Christians who have ultimately been scattered all around. And he's writing to them, uh, encouraging them, exhorting them, sometimes even using pretty harsh language with them, primarily because they are people, individuals, families who actually have a really good understanding uh, of the Bible, of God's word, of doctrine, but unfortunately weren't we're doing anything about it. And so a lot of James's letter has been very practical in the sense of this is what it looks like to move forward in light of what you believe in. And so what we've seen is James go from subject to subject. Oftentimes what we notice is that sometimes he'll come back to something he's already talked about, maybe something he's already addressed, and he'll come back to it by way of emphasis, or maybe he has a new point. And we're going to see that in our time today. 
today, we're going to see him actually return to a theme that we want, that we saw once in chapter one, and then another one that we saw in chapter three. So at times he seems a little bit repetitive, uh, but part of the reason he's being repetitive is because one, he's jumping from subject to subject because he wants to get a lot out to the church. But number two, it seems appropriate for the context of that section in light of whatever it is he's encouraging them or exhorting them on. So with that being said, this is what I'll do. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. I'm going to pray for our time, uh, and then we're going to park in verses 7 and 8, and then we'll kind of, we'll kind of go from there. So here we go. So you've got your Bibles open, which should have been enough time. Here we go. Verse 7. So he writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Now you'll notice when he, when he transitions into that language, when he's using the language of brothers, he's, he's referring to the church now. Uh, for the past two weeks, we've seen him use kind of some really strong language, and, uh, and sometimes it was addressed to the church. Sometimes it wasn't necessarily addressed to the church, or it wasn't meant to be something of an encouragement, but kind of a hard word. And so here, his, his tone is now changing, right? Especially as we close it up. And he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. And if you're taking notes, underline that section where he says establish your hearts. That's that's ultimately going to be our theme today. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patient, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Here you go. Let me pray and we'll park in seven and eight. Heavenly Father, as, uh, as we start our time, Lord, I pray that we would, uh, I pray that we would ground ourselves in the here and now. In other words, we can quickly uh, look to what we have after our time together, our time of worship, whether that's lunch or hanging out with families or maybe even taking care of whatever plans we have. I pray that that would be set aside momentarily. I pray that we would draw all of our attention, all of our, our, our worship toward you in this time of listening to your preached word, in this time of responding in song, in this time of preparing our hearts, that our attention would be focused on you and the worship of you. Lord, I pray that I would be set aside and that your Holy Spirit would speak through me to hearts that are softened and receptive to your words. I pray that ears would be open. Uh, And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, most importantly, in this time. And so we ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, here we go. Verse 7 and 8. There's a lot of content. Again, if you're, if you're new, I love content, and I love lists, and so we have a lot of that, okay? So here we go, verses, verses 7 and 8, and so what we're ultimately seeing, we're going to jump into some practical stuff, is in verse 7 and 8, James begins by encouraging the church in three areas. Now, I'm necess- not necessarily going in order, but in 7 and 8, he encourages the church in three areas. Here's what they are, and then we're going to talk about each one of them. And so the first first one that he encourages them on is uh, the coming of the Lord, that the Lord is going to return. So he's bringing some eschatology into this section of scripture. And we're going to look at this broad uh, aspect of what he means. So that's number one. The second one that he begins to talk about is patience. And in fact, he says it twice. And you may not already like that because he's said it twice. And maybe you find yourself as one of the most impatient people on this planet. This sermon is for you. And so uh, you see him saying, patient twice. And so he encourages the church by being patient and uses the example and analogy of a farmer. So that's number two. Number three, something's going on with kids. Uh, Number three, 
He goes on to say to establish your hearts. He says this uh, at the end of verse 8, to establish your hearts. And, and what I mean by establishing your heart, and I don't want to get, get too much into it just yet, but very quickly or very easily we can hear the phrase, man, just establish your heart, and we become very Christianese about it, right? Uh, it sounds like something out of a Disney movie. It sounds like something out of some cheesy novel that you maybe found at Walmart, right? And so and that's not at all what it means. And so we're going to dive into what that means, uh, frankly, because that's the theme of our time today. And so those are the three things that he's ultimately going to encourage or begin to encourage the church on in verses seven and eight. So the coming of the Lord, patience and being like the farmer, and then finally establishing your hearts. And so let's look at the first one, right? The, The coming of the Lord. The reason he reminds them twice about this, or the reason I believe he reminds them twice about this, is because for us as Christians, or if you say that you belong to the Lord, what I would say is that our life, our our history is always going towards something. In other words, a Christian life isn't just something that is stale and it's a one-time thing. We're ultimately working our way towards something. There is something that's ultimately going to happen, and what's going to happen is that one day... One day, Jesus will return to reclaim his bride, right? And so he's saying that in light of the season that they find themselves in. And so you might find yourself in in a difficult season. You might find yourself in a challenging season. Maybe you see a season that's going to be challenging and difficult on the horizon, and you're about to walk into it. Maybe you've just walked out of one, And these are themes that we've unpacked a little bit in chapter 1, but nonetheless, they seem to be appropriate for our time in chapter 5 as well. And so the first reminder is, in light of the season that you're walking through, and even though we're going to get practical about it, in light of the season that we're walking through, one day, here's the simple, solid truth that Jesus will return to reclaim his bride. Number two, when it comes to the coming of the Lord, is that he uses or he emphasizes the coming of the Lord so that we would hold fast to the promises of God as seen in his word. And finally, number three, part of the reason I think he emphasizes this twice is so that it would remind us of the here and now. And I would, I would encourage this section by way of transition as we look at Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5. I think it says 1 through 15 on there. That's not right, but it's 1 through 5. Here we go. This is what the writer says. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So we see that, that uh, the earth is being made new, and you see this, this section or this, this uh, small phrase that says, and the sea was, uh, the sea was no more. Right Now, if you go back a couple of months, we walked through this series called Kingdom Come, and we actually unpacked this a little bit more. I won't dive too much into it, but when you see something like the sea was no more, why that's an encouragement is because in Jewish literature, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, the sea was often associated with chaos. The sea was often associated where things went wrong and where evil came from right? Like if you think about a hurricane, right? The last place you want to be on is the beach. You know what I'm saying? Right? And so when he says that the sea, no, the sea is no more, he is referring to the fact that there's evil is gone. There is no more chaos. And so he says, uh, and so the sea was, was no more. It continues. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
So we look to Revelation 21 to see what ultimately will happen. That God will restore everything and make all things new. So it's an emphasis and a reminder that we are working our way towards something. So as you find yourself in a difficult season, whether it's the Christmas holidays or not, but if you find yourself in a difficult season, just out of one or about to start one, the truth is that historically, the people of God are working towards something. And what they're working toward is the anticipation of Christ's return for him to reclaim his bride, right? That is ultimately what we are working toward. And so we hold fast to his promises and we hold fast to what God is doing right now, right? Theologians call this the already and the not yet. The already that Christ has come, died on a cross, has given us redemption and reconciled us to the Father. In other words, we have a relationship with God through the work of the Son, the finished work of the Son. So that is something that He has done. So restoration has begun, but it is not yet complete. The already and the not yet. And so that's the encouragement that James uses in light of talking about the coming of the Lord twice. And he uses this as an encouragement for what is going on. So let's look at the second thing. So he says to be patient. How many of you are impatient? Let's just be honest. We're a church. Boom. Man. Okay. What do I do? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm impatient about some things. Um, Or am I? Um, Okay, sorry, I'm not lost. I just got sweat in my eyes. Okay, so he begins to talk about the patience and the farmer. Now, for those of you that are impatient, for those of you that are patient, that doesn't mean you've arrived. That just means you haven't gotten impatient yet, right? And so when it comes to patience, he says it twice. Now, again, if you find yourself impatient, that might be something you already don't want to hear. You don't want to hear, be patient. And then he tells you to be patient again, because that's not necessarily something that helps you out. But what he does refer to is that he uses his analogy as a way of encouragement and exhortation. He brings in the farmer, right? And so let's look at what he says about the farmer, and then I'll, I'll unpack that just a little bit more. So he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Be patient, excuse me. James uses the example of a farmer in conjunction with patience. He uses the example of a farmer to further emphasize fruitfulness. That's what he's trying to emphasize right now. And he emphasizes this, or it can be emphasized in three ways. Here's number one. I don't know if it's up there, but here's number one, right? When we're talking about fruitfulness, the first thing is everything happens in seasons. Everything happens in seasons. Now, we're going to go personal on this. When it comes to being personal about it, you might find yourself in one season and your friend or your spouse might find themselves in another season. And God is at work in each one of you in a different way. He's shaping you. He's pruning you. He's maturing you. He's helping you grow steadfast. He's removing things from you. He's disciplining you. Everything happens in seasons. It's not all too common where everybody's generally going to find themselves in the same season. Everything happens in seasons. Number two, you can't rush the fruitfulness of that season. A farmer can't rush the rain so that they can get their crops. Likewise, we can't rush the season that we find ourselves in for the purpose of fruitfulness. That means God's going to be at work. Till when? God's going to be at work. How long? God's going to be at work. That's the point. The point is that you can't rush it. And oftentimes, which leads into the last thing, oftentimes is when we find ourselves in seasons where God is pruning us, shaping us, molding us, disciplining us, when we find ourselves having to be patient in those seasons, right? when we find ourselves having to be patient in those seasons, We often think that God is punishing us, right? You feel me on that? You often think that God is punishing us. But I don't necessarily know how truth that is because then what was the point of Jesus going to the cross? He took on our punishment. However, I do believe that seasons of patience aren't necessarily times of punishment, but times of discipline, Discipline where God is shaping you, where God is molding you. As we looked at James 1, where we are seeing steadfastness and maturity develop. Now, whether you like it or not, it's something else, 
right? But it's still happening. In fact, let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 7. The writer says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for the discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Discipline isn't punishment, but it is for the sake of shaping and molding. Parents, you can side, I hope, with that, right? It's for the purpose of shaping the individual, of molding the individual, right? Additionally, when it comes to patience, and because you may find yourself impatient, you might cling to anxiety, you might cling to misery. And I'll speak a little bit on that in just a minute. But again, just to kind of recap that, that big section. So we talked about the coming of the Lord. We talked about patience and the farmer. Despite the season that you find yourself in, it's not random. And God's at work. He may be at work in you differently than this other person. But he is at work, and so everything happens in seasons, and you can't rush fruitfulness. You're not going to rush it. Right? Which leads into the third thing that James was talking about, which was establishing your hearts. Now remember, this isn't some cheesy Christian line. This is something that we literally do so that we are grounded in the good news of the gospel. And so when we're talking about establishing our hearts, what we're talking about is having the courage to persevere. See, oftentimes in really difficult seasons, we give up way too early. You bow out, you bounce, you leave, you don't want to be a part of it right? It's the courage to persevere. And in light of that perseverance, even in the midst of struggle and chaos, this is going to sound kind of churchy, but I'll I'll unpack this. Your hope and your trust is in the Lord and not in anxiety and misery. When it comes to trusting the Lord, right? It's not wishful thinking. Ultimately, we're talking about faith. We're not talking about wishful thinking. I'm not talking about being blind and then making a step and hoping that he's going to catch you. In fact, that's contrary to what the Bible says and teaches about faith. And so when we're looking about faith, we're looking about obedience in what God has already said. And I'll unpack that a little bit more. But again, faith is literally obedience in what God has said. In fact, if you and I say that we believe God, then that means that we are coming under the authority of that belief. There is active involvement in there. It's a fancy way of saying obedience, right? Because check it, the heart... The heart that is anxious sees the future with no hope. The heart that is anxious sees the future with no hope. Now, I'm preaching to the choir on this one. And you can ask my wife on this. I tend to go towards anxiety all of the time. I will lean into anxiety way too often, more so than I do God's word. Do I begin to worry and I begin to think that it's all done and uh, life is horrible and all of these things are going on, regardless of the season that we find ourselves in, I will lean into anxiety. But the truth about an anxious heart, it's that it is one that is holding on to the future without hope. And yet that is not what Scripture teaches or what Jesus says about faith. Now, that doesn't mean that just because you're holding tight to God and His Word, that doesn't mean that your season is going to be easy. That doesn't mean that you're not going to face difficult circumstances. That doesn't mean that times aren't going to be tough. And in fact, if you believed that the Christian life is about all of that, Scripture teaches the opposite. It teaches the opposite. Trusting in the Lord isn't necessarily about the circumstances around you. It's about what he has said. And that's how we establish our hearts. In fact, let's get a little bit practical. This was something that we were going to wait till the end, uh, but we'll get a little bit practical. Here, here are three ways. This is the practical side of things, right? So when we're talking about establishing your heart, I can teach all day on trusting in God and having faith. But ultimately, like, uh, if you're like me, you ultimately want to know, well, how do I do that? What are, what are some things that I can do? Now, I'll give you three things. Each one kind of overlaps. Right? Each one kind of overlaps, but it involves you and it involves your participation. Feel me on this? So here's number one. When we're looking at establishing your hearts, we're looking at trusting in Jesus. 
That's number one. That's number one. We're going to be trusting in Jesus, right? And so I say this by way of uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul writes, For we walk by faith and not sight. What that means, as I said earlier, is that faith isn't wishful thinking. Faith isn't something that you hope will happen and that you'll ultimately be caught should you take that step. It does not mean that faith is not blind. In fact, biblically, there are three things that are required in order to amount to faith. And so the first one is God's Word, that we acknowledge God's Word, what He has said and written. That's number one, right? Number two, that we agree with God's Word and what He has said and what He has promised, that we agree with that. Here's number three. Number three is active involvement in light of what He has said. Again, fancy way of saying obedience, right? But those three things equal faith. So it's not blind. It's not wishful thinking. So if your Bible is closed and you're wondering why you have no faith, that's, you've already missed step one, Right? You've already missed step one. Number two, right? So we talked about trust in Jesus. The number two is uh, you need an outlet. In a little bit, as we continue walking, excuse me, walking through this, this section, what we're going to see is that uh, oftentimes when we're in difficult seasons, we say foolish things. We may even do foolish things. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But the pressure of seasons does come upon you. Sometimes you feel really burdened. Sometimes you're very pressured. Sometimes you're just in a huge amount of stress. You need an outlet. For some of you, that might be working out. For some of you, it's working outside, maybe reading a book, taking a walk, hanging out with your friends. Whatever it is, you need an outlet. Otherwise, you're going to spontaneously combust. And then uh, you might combust in front of others, right? And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll dig into that a little bit more as we get, keep going because you'll see, you'll see how that applies. Like, why should I have an outlet? We'll talk about that in a bit. And finally, the third thing is, and we preach this a lot, we speak about it a lot, is you need community. A result of community, like sharing, doing life with one another, right? Not liking stuff on Facebook, but like seeing each other face to face, right? Like, a result of genuine community. In fact, Acts 2 says that um, when it came to community, it's because they devoted themselves to one another. So uh, a result of devoting ourselves to one another is accountability. Is accountability. Accountability means that you allow someone to speak into your life to both encourage you and to exhort you. To encourage you in the sense of keep going. To exhort you in the sense of maybe sharing a hard word while looking at the problem alongside of you. Yes, it's going to hurt. That doesn't mean that they're being mean. That means that they're being honest and they love you, right? Proverbs says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. I, I expect the men that are around me and my wife to, to speak a hard word into me. That doesn't mean they're being mean or rude uh, or they're unloving, but it's because that they do love me that I expect them to speak some hard things into me. Now, whether you want to hear, again, whether you want to hear that part or not, that's something else. Okay? So those are, I would say those are three things that we can do to establish our hearts. So trust in Jesus, that means having faith. And again, that's not some blind statement. We just walk through what that means. Right? So faith in Christ. Uh, number two was get an outlet. Number three is community. Because here's the hard truth, especially when you hear community. If you hear about things, you're like, man, I don't want somebody to speak into my life. Look, just hear me on this. You can't say you love Jesus and not the bride. The bride is the church. Okay? You can't have one without the other. It's like someone coming up to me and saying, you know what, I think you're really cool. I'd love to be your friend, but I'm not really digging your wife. Then I would say, then I'm not really digging you. Amen. Right? It, you don't get me without my wife. Okay? And so for an individual, and that might be you, for an individual who says, man, I just love Jesus. I just don't like His church. Okay, that's contrary to what Scripture teaches. You get, you get both of them. And if that's the position that you choose to hold, stop complaining then. Stop complaining when a hard word is spoken. Stop complaining when there is a lack of growth and maturity in your understanding of the gospel. 
Stop complaining then. That's the trade-off. Okay? So those are some of the practical things, right? Let's, let's keep going uh, before I keep going on that, right? Let's, let's keep diving into this. Let's go to verse 9. So verses 7 and 8, James encourages with three things, right? He encourages with the coming of the Lord that we are working towards something, ultimately Christ's return, uh, that we are to be patient in light of the season that we find ourselves in and why we should be patient. And then he says to establish our hearts. And then he transitions into verse 9. And he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James returns to the issue of language. We covered this in, in chapter 3. And I talked a little bit about this earlier. See, oftentimes when we find ourselves in seasons that uh, have us under a lot of pressure, where we're facing difficult circumstances, uh, or it's just a really tough time, um, you say stuff you shouldn't. Right? It's like, uh, this is like the serious version of hangry. You guys know what hangry is? Right? It's where you get angry because you're hungry right? And, uh, and because you don't have food in your system. And oftentimes, once you devour that burger, you're like, oh man, I'm sorry for what I said when I was hungry, <laughs> right? That's, that's being hangry, okay? Uh, this is the serious version of being hangry. In other words, when you find yourself in difficult circumstances, when you find yourself in that, that just that hard season, don't use that as an excuse to talk down to people. Don't use that as an excuse specifically to complain about one another. What James is talking about when he says, do not grumble against one another, he is specifically addressing the church because the, jer- the church is complaining about one another. Everybody is in a different season, but because I'm in this season and my wife is in a different season, I'm going to complain about my wife and the things that she's not doing. See, oftentimes when we find ourselves in those seasons, some of the things that I see is I see husbands complain about their wives. I see wives gossip about their husbands. I see people have beef with other people that they don't even know there's beef there. And I see a lot of talk about this and about them and about whatever situation, but I don't see anybody talking with one another. I see complaining. I see groaning. I see immaturity in the church. And that's ultimately what he is getting to. Man, I'm sorry that you find yourself in this season and God will ultimately come to reclaim his bride and that does not give you the excuse to complain against one another, but to come alongside of one another. That is ultimately what he is getting at in this section. Stop complaining against one another. Husbands, stop complaining about your wife. Sure, they find themselves in a different season. And ultimately, when you put two sinners in a house, it's not always going to be awesome. And when you look at the big picture, the church as a family, if you just look at the holidays, right? When you put a family together in the holidays, there's a reason my brothers and I stay outside sometimes, right? Or there's a reason one of my brothers and I will, will go at it, right? It's oftentimes in the same room, not everybody's going to jive all the time. But that doesn't mean that you can't address things. And that does not give you the excuse to complain against one another, to groan against one another, rather than having conversations with one another. Again, sometimes people will have beef with other individuals and they don't even know that they got beef with them. All because they're in a different season. Husbands, stop complaining about your wives. Wives, stop gossiping about your husbands. And and both stop masking it under prayer requests. Stop masking it and saying, man, I just need prayer for, you know what? Let me tell you what he did or she did. Cut it out. Have the conversation. Invite one or two people in your life to speak into you, not to gossip, but so that you would hear truth. Is it hard? Yes, it is hard. But at least there isn't complaining against one another. Right? And that's the, that's the point that James is making in this section. Further, it's a theme that we talked about several weeks ago where the heart, or excuse me, the mouth is a revelation of the heart. The mouth is a revelation of the heart. You might say, man, I didn't mean to say it, but you did. You did say those things. You can't necessarily take them back. You can apologize, but you can't take them back. The mouth is a revelation of the heart. And so don't use the circumstance that you find yourself in, the work that God is doing, as an excuse to complain against one another. 
Because really what we're doing when we complain against one another is revealing what's really in our hearts. That's the bottom line. And that's the push that James gives. In fact, we can look to James 1, 19 through 20. He writes, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Man, those three things are awesome, right? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? When you want to complain and you find yourself in that difficult season, uh, it's actually everything's reversed, right? You are uh, slow to listen and you're quick to speak and you're quick to anger, right? But because it's about someone else, it has nothing to do with you. That's horrible theology, by the way, Okay? What I would say as your pastor, as your brother, as your friend, repent. Repent. Trust in Jesus. I'm not saying not to address what we're talking about. You're gonna, right? But first, repent. Trust in Jesus. Have the conversation if you need to. In fact, I'm willing to bank that when you have the conversation, it's really nothing the other individual did. Maybe it's because they found themselves in a different season than you. Show that there is this, see, part of the, if, if that's what's convicting you now, I don't know if that is, but if that's what's convicting you now, that's God at work in your season. And the conversation that you're about to have is a result of fruitfulness. See, it works. Okay? Let's go on. Verses 10 and 11. Right? So along with the seasons of difficulty, he goes on to say, as an example, right? So he's saying, as an example, in the season that you find yourself in, the difficulty that you're in, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, uh, consider, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. So he's saying, as another example, let's go ahead and look to the Old Testament prophets. Let's look at how they endured and how they suffered uh, and ultimately what happened to them. But more importantly, they remained steadfast, right? Even in the midst of the difficulty of their seasons and persecution that they faced, they remained steadfast. So that's what he's saying, right? Uh, Never mind. Uh, so he says, remain steadfast. And he goes on to say, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he says, let's look at the Old Testament prophets. Remember those guys, those dudes, man, they persevered. Those dudes were persecuted and they remained steadfast. That doesn't mean they didn't struggle, but they remained steadfast. So now let's specifically look to Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, and you see how compassionate and merciful he is. Excuse me. So you see how compassionate and merciful he is. So James is using Job as an example of an individual who has his heart established in the Lord and is steadfast in the middle of chaos. Right? You guys know the story of Job. Everything was taken away from him. His children died. His livestock died. His wife bounced. Everything went wrong in Job's life. But in addition to that, you might think, man, he's skipping over kind of this big portion, right? That God and, and the accuser, Satan, had this conversation, right? And Satan's like, man, if you take everything away, he's not going to worship you. He's going to hate you. He's going to turn his back on you. And God says, no, he won't. Right? I'm paraphrasing everything, right? Like if you open the book of Job, you're not going to see this kind of a dialogue, right? But nonetheless, right, God's ultimately telling him, no, no, he's not. He's not going to turn his back, Right? And so he, uh, what we see are two things before I, before I go on. This is, this is what I love, right? Because you can look at Job and say, like, man, look at everything that happened. But check it out. Even when Satan walked into God's courts, right, he had to, number one, he had to ask for permission. He had to ask God for permission. That's the first thing he did. He's like, can I X, Y, and Z, right? And then... When God gave him permission or gives him permission, he gives him permission with conditions. So he limits him even more. He gives him parameters, right? And Satan can't do anything about it. Why that's encouraging is because it should be a reminder that Satan is limited. He's limited. Nevertheless, 
They go on, stuff happens to Job, and what do we see? How's his response in chapter 1? This is verse 20. It says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And worshipped. In the midst of chaos and everything being taken away from him, the first thing that he does is worship. Does that make his circumstance less severe? No. Because that's chapter 1. Stuff is still going to happen. But what we see Job do is display an established heart in the middle of chaos. That's the first thing that he does, that he, that he worships God even in the middle of chaos. And so church, let me, let me tell you, there's a difference There is a difference, and we see it displayed through all of Job. There is a difference between struggling with God and denying Him. There's a big difference in that. If you read Job and you see all of the different things that are happening to Job in his life, you see him struggle with God. He's holding tightly to what God has said. He's holding tightly to who God is, but that doesn't mean he's not struggling with what God is doing. That doesn't mean he's not struggling with what's going on and how does this just tie to what God's promises are? That doesn't mean he doesn't struggle with it. You might be in that season where you're like, man, I am just struggling to understand what God is doing. I don't get it. This is really difficult. This is really hard. I think it's okay to struggle, especially if you have some of those practical things happening in your life because you could bounce some of these thoughts with one another. But apart from that, there is a giant difference from struggling with what God is doing and denying him altogether. And so if you say, man, I just, I just walked away from God. I just quit that season. I quit the church. I did all that. And the question really is, were you ever his to be, uh, did you ever belong to him in the first place? That's the question. Because if you're struggling with God, you can look throughout the entire history of the Bible and see people struggling in their circumstances. Look at the prophets. That's the first example he uses. Look at the Old Testament prophets. They struggled. They were persecuted. They persevered, and they remained steadfast. Now, why does he use Job as an example? Because the people that James is writing to knew about what happened in the end. In the end, we see God meet Job in his brokenness and restores him. And he restores him. And so that's not just the example, but that's also the encouragement that in the season that you find yourself in, that God will meet you in your brokenness. And the promise, the promise is that he will restore you. That's the promise. And so he continues. And he goes on and says, uh, this is verse 12. He says, but above all my brothers... Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Here's what I would say, number one. When he says do not swear, he's not talking about cuss words. He's talking about oaths. Okay? Side note. But in this section, he is quoting Jesus' teaching from Matthew 5. We'll look at that briefly. And so Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, uh, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So he's returning back to the theme of language, right? James brings it back. And so here's what I'll say in light of oaths. What he is saying is when he, when he writes, man, do not swear. What he's saying is our word, our word ought to be reliable and trustworthy enough rather than having to use God's name to guarantee the reliability of what we say. Your word ought to be enough, right? So let's kind of look at that practically. Okay, my encouragement to you would be the practical side of it. My encouragement to you would be to be careful with the commitments that you make. If we're talking about difficult seasons and difficult circumstances and hard times, right? Oftentimes when those seasons come in after we've made certain commitments, several things we want to do several things or we tend to do several things. We tend to want to quit and back out. We tend to go against our commitments, 
right? Uh, we tend to not communicate what's going on, right? And so what happens is that we lose sight of what's going on right now and we lose sight of the future. That's what happens. So with that being said, be careful with the commitments that you make. I believe that the commitments that you make should be prayerfully considered. I think the commitments you should make should be prayerfully considered. I think you should, I believe that you should be steadfast in your commitments. If you said yes and committed to someone or something, you will have to be steadfast. Don't believe me? Get married. Right? You will have to be steadfast. Right? Stick to your commitment. Be steadfast. Those are the two things I would say. They need to be prayerfully considered so that when you decide on them, you understand that this commitment is going to come with some steadfastness. Right? And by way of exhortation, I would add oftentimes, not always, I'll say that one more time, oftentimes, not always, the phrase, I'll pray about it, is a cop-out. Okay? I'll pray about it. Let me, let me, hey, let me pray about it. Ask me in six months, right? Like, I'll pray about it. Oftentimes, that's a cop-out. And so what he's saying here is, man, let your word be true. If you made a commitment, stick to that commitment. That doesn't mean that it isn't going to be difficult at times, but stick to that commitment. That doesn't mean that when you do find yourself in tough times, that you bounce out of that commitment. Communicate, Right? Say what's going on so that others can help you. In addition to that, now that that goes for the yes and the no. If you said no to something, that's not a bad thing. Some of you love to say yes to everything. Don't, okay? If you say no, you can still fulfill that commitment. And be honest about it. Man, I, I can't do that right now. I can't help right now. I can't serve or commit to that area right now or whatever it is that's going on. That's not a bad thing. But if you said yes to something, then follow through with your yes. Follow through with your yes. Because this is, uh, this is comparing itself to what we looked at in verse 9. He is exhorting them to be truthful with their word in light of them complaining against one another. Stop complaining against one another. And be, wor- be, be truthful to your word. You don't need to use God's name to demonstrate the reliability of his word or to demonstrate the reliability of your word. Let your yes be yes. This is a verse that that, uh, my son and I are are memorizing. We try to memorize some stuff at home. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Okay? So prayerfully consider things, and understand that commitments come with steadfastness. They're going to come with steadfastness. And so with that being said, let me close with this. All right? Amidst everything, we're talking about difficult circumstances, hard seasons, differences in seasons, differences in what's going on in one another's lives. And even throughout all of that, what James is encouraging is patience, the coming of the Lord, maturity, and steadfastness. And oftentimes we can look at the practicality of all of those things and forget the gospel. Because the gospel is the vehicle that carries all of this and that makes all of this even possible. So how do we tie in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to all of that? Well, we tie it in by looking at the work of Jesus. We tie it in by looking at the work of Jesus and looking at his humanity. Oftentimes, while it's a good thing, I think we uh, only look at the divinity of Christ. But when we see him without sin, he was not just fully God, he was also fully man. And so the encouragement there becomes that Jesus was steadfast and he endured. Jesus was steadfast and he endured. He endured by going to the cross, keeping his faith, and completing the work that he was sent to do. It wasn't random. It was very difficult. And he was steadfast, he endured, and he completed the work that he was sent to do. And if you find yourself in that difficult season, whether it's, you know, just it's super busy or devastation or loss or a number of other things, my, my encouragement to you is to look to the person of Jesus. 
that Jesus endured and he was steadfast, that Jesus went to the cross to die for sinners so that we would be given redemption by his blood, given a new identity because of his work, not ours, because of his righteousness and not ours. Because of that, you have a new life. doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but because of that, you have a new life. And because of that, you can place your trust in Jesus. This is what the writer of Hebrews 4 says, and I'll close with this. Hebrews 4.15, the writer says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Join me in prayer. <clears throat> I think, Father, as we, uh, as we close this time, Lord, I want to begin by, by lifting up my brothers and sisters who find themselves in, in uh, yeah, just a tough season, in a difficult season. And as practical as James can be, sometimes even practical application, like practical theology, isn't always the best encouragement. That doesn't make it not true. But even in light of the truthfulness of practical theology, what we hold to is the promises of your word. We hold to that one day Jesus will return and that there will be no more pain and every tear will be wiped away. We hold to the fact that he is making all things new. We hold closely and we cling to Jesus as our anchor. We hold to the promise of his word that we have redemption by his blood. We hold to and cling to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, transforming our hearts, whether it's a lot at the same time or a little bit at a time. Lord, we thank you for the seasons that you do put us in, even uh, the difficult ones, the really hard ones. We thank you for them because it should force us to look at what you are doing. And I know it may be difficult, but that doesn't mean that you're not at work. And Father, I pray that we would uh, come together to devote one another, devote ourselves to one another for the purpose of encouragement, for the purpose of exhortation, for the purpose of loving one another, not complaining about one another. Lord, as we walk into a time of tithes and offerings, that this, that this time would be uh, a time of, of worship through testimony. This is where we relinquish the control that we think we have. This is where it's an easy um, window to see the work that you're doing in our hearts by giving generously and sacrificially. We don't, we don't always want to do that because what we have we think is ours. Yet what we saw last week is as you call us to be stewards, a result of that is understanding that all we have is a gift from you and that as a steward... Part of the result is being generous because you displayed the ultimate form of generosity by sending your son to die on a cross for sinners. And Lord, as we go into the time of of communion, that would be a time where we give you our sin, where we repent of our sin and, and trust in your son, Jesus, where we are reminded that we are being made new by his blood and that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. And Lord, at the end of all of that, we come back to worship you in song, praising you for what you're doing, even if we're still struggling through it, uh, and particularly as we're walking through it and, uh, and seeing what you're doing. Lord, we praise you for all the work in our lives. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.